I love that. Uh, I love that countdown video we saw this morning. This is my king. If you get a chance, uh, you can just YouTube it. It's uh, it's up there. Uh, my favorite part, as I commented to Claude, we were standing in the back. My favorite part is where Dr. Lockridge says, "I wish I could describe him to you," because you know he's gone through this three and a half minutes uh, of describing Jesus, and he comes to this point where he says, "I wish I could describe him to you. He's indescribable." And of course, the refrain, I wonder, do you know him? And I think this morning, you know, you'll notice that this is sort of the Transfiguration Sunday comes at the end of Epiphany. It comes just before Ash Wednesday and the beginning of Lent. Epiphany being that season in which it's all about the manifestation, the revealing, the appearing of Jesus, the King of glory. And here we see... Uh, we see as we, we step towards Ash Wednesday, as we step towards Lent, we see Jesus indescribable. I wish I could describe him to you. Peter and James and John on this mountaintop, transfiguration, they see something that, it reads as though they're just grasping for words. How do I explain what I see happening right now? I know that's Jesus, but Jesus is different than these two Old Testament figures, these two heroes of the faith, just kind of hanging out. And Peter says what always strikes me is, as odd. I think that's the best way we can say it, right? Lord, it's good that we're here. If you wish, I'll make three tents. One for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. Peter has a taste for toe jam. He's always got his feet in his mouth. <clears throat> and here he is, you know, continuing to miss the point about Jesus, attempting to exert control of the situation, attempting to interject himself into the situation, into a, a situation that he clearly does not con- understand, clearly cannot contain, clearly cannot control. And before we cast too much uh, wishful or hard thinking towards Peter, let's remember that we'd probably do the same thing. In fact, we do the same thing. Caught up in this amazing mountaintop experience, caught up in this, this moment of transcendence, this moment of wonder, this moment of awe, Peter tried to control the situation. And like Peter, we try to manipulate We try to form Jesus to fit our desires, to fit our wishes, even when we're clearly not in control. Like Peter, we have to see Jesus transfigured, Jesus proclaimed to be the king, the one to whom we are to listen. Peter's done this before. He's attempted to control Jesus before. He's attempted to, to fit Jesus into his Uh, preconceived notions, his ideas and ideals, his desires before. He's done this when he tried to correct Jesus on the matter of death and resurrection. In fact, you'll notice that Matthew connects the transfiguration directly back to a conversation that Peter and James and John and other disciples have with Jesus. Go back to Matthew chapter 16, and we see that uh, in that event... uh, Jesus has 
come into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do these people say the Son of Man is? And, and Peter, in, uh, acting as the spokesman for the disciples, says, we believe you're the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Peter's disciples told Jesus what they thought, who they thought Jesus was. And then Matthew is very careful to tell us in verse 21 of chapter 16, from that time Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. That doesn't fit what Peter and the disciples were expecting the Messiah to be and do. That doesn't fit their preconceived notions. And so Peter attempted to teach the teacher. He attempted to correct him. That didn't go very well for Peter. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord. This shall never happen to you. And Jesus turns to his friend, his follower, his disciple. He says, Get behind me, Satan. Jesus didn't fit their preconceived notions or desires for the Messiah. And so, and so Peter attempted to teach the teacher, attempted to correct the teacher. While the disciples could and would confess Jesus to be the Messiah, they weren't yet at a point to really listen to really listen to what Jesus had to say about what it meant for him to be the Messiah. And so Matthew chapter 17 begins after six days. After six days. So what's happening here? What's going on in this transfiguration? Not, not just the, the, the transformation, the metamorphosis of Jesus' physical features, but what is it about the voice himself? And I think it comes back to the point Peter and James and John, the disciples and us, we have to be told again and again that Jesus is the king, the one to whom we are to listen. That's good. That is some information for us all. He was transfigured before them and his face shone like the sun and his clothes became white as light. Still recognizable as Jesus. Matthew writes his appearance was changed. He went, underwent some sort of metamorphosis. And the best that I can understand what happened is that Jesus is revealing his glory, the glory that he temporarily gave up in the incarnation and the glory that he would take back after the resurrection and in the ascension. His appearance was changed so that he shone like the sun and even his clothing dazzled with light. And Jesus revealed the glory that was his as the eternal son. He's not just another preacher. He's not just another teacher. He's not just another prophet. He's greater than any other. There is, this is where the story gets, I think, really interesting. As his superiority, uh, his, his nature as the one to whom we ought to listen is clearly revealed. Behold, there appeared to him Moses and Elijah talking with him. Moses and Elijah could be considered to be the, the, the first century Jewish equivalent to Tom Brady and Bill Belichick. They're the greatest of all time at what they do. Moses and Elijah were both prophets called, sent, and used by God during intense periods of miraculous events in ministry. Each had their own mountaintop experiences with God. Each had unusual ends to their life, and Jesus outshines them. 
There was a time when Moses shined, in Exodus chapter 34, uh, talks about that. But, but like the moon, which only reflects the sun's glory and light, Moses only reflected God's glory and God's light. Moses shined not because he was glorious. He shined because he had encountered the glory of God and reflected God's glory. And Moses shining actually faded over time involuntarily. He had nothing really to do with it. Jesus, however, Jesus shines with his own glory. Jesus shines with a glory that is his own, and his glory is one that, while masked for a time, is one that never fades, will never dwindle. Together, Moses and Elijah, they, they might represent the law and the prophets. They might represent the old covenant. And as they come and they meet with Jesus, they point to Jesus as being superior, greater than. He literally, Jesus literally outshines them. In this, it's revealed that Jesus is superior to what came before. He is the one to whom the disciples must listen, but they continue to miss the point. Lord, it's good that we're here. If you wish, I'll make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. Peter tries to manipulate, tries to control, tries to extend. He actually attempts to treat Jesus as equal to Moses and Elijah. On the mountaintop here, literally gazing upon the glory of Jesus, Peter attempted to exert control by prolonging the experience, keeping it there trying to manipulate, trying to uh, maintain control, to contain the uncontainable, to control the uncontrollable. And I love the, the, little, the little nugget of information that Matthew tells us in verse 5. And Peter was still speaking. He was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. Rude to interrupt someone, isn't it? Goodness. Not when you're God. Not when you're giving testimony and witness to the identity of Jesus the Christ. Just as God descended upon Mount Sinai in a cloud of glory, so he descends upon this mountain. And in one of the few times in the New Testament, God speaks declaring the identity and superiority of Jesus, God declares him to be king, the one to whom we are to listen. In this climax of the event, the Father speaks words from Scripture to describe Jesus. First, he says, this is my beloved son. This is a phrase that is, comes directly from Psalm 2. Psalm 2 was a psalm about the Lord's anointed king, the psalm begins by uh, noting the furious rebellion of the nations against God and God's chosen one. It speaks about God vindicating his appointed king when he says, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. None less than God the Father proclaims Jesus to be his son, to be the true royal king, the one appointed and anointed by the Father to be the king. Second, the voice of heaven states, with whom I'm well pleased. And this phrase is often connected to Isaiah 42, where God mentions a servant, one chosen by him who will suffer 
Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. None less than God the Father proclaims Jesus to be the king, the suffering servant, the one who will suffer, but who will bring justice and will be vindicated to rule and reign as king. In everything that the voice says, Jesus is proclaimed to be exactly the one the disciples were looking for, the Messiah, the true king, the true king, greater than Moses, greater than Elijah, bringing with him a new covenant greater than the old. Jesus is the true king, regardless of their preconceived notions, narrow boxes, or desires for what the Messiah would look like and be. Jesus is the true king, God says, and he says one more thing. Listen to him. To disciples attempting to control Jesus, to disciples attempting to dictate to the king the terms of his rule and reign, God says, listen. Like Peter and James and John and like the rest, we must recognize the truth that following Jesus, believing in Jesus as Lord and Savior, necessarily means we are His first. We don't own Him. He owns us. We become His disciples. We become His subjects. We become His people. It's Jesus that is the King. We must recognize that, quite frankly, we approach Jesus far more like Peter on the mountaintop. We are more than happy to welcome him and to ask him into our hearts, but only on our terms. We treat Jesus as some sort of add-on, as if Jesus is some sort of uh, new piece of furniture that accentuates the space. We try to fit Jesus into our mold. We try to keep in control, but that's not the way it's supposed to be. When we believe in Jesus, we give ourselves, we give all of who we are to Jesus. We surrender to the king. Fundamentally, in his book, The Kingdom Conspiracy, author Scott McKnight argues, fundamentally, the gospel is about God ruling in and through Jesus Christ, the king who died, was raised, and exalted to reign forever and ever. And I wonder if perhaps Christianity in our world has tried too hard to domesticate King Jesus. Rather than let him be king, we want him to be our co-pilot or some type of bearded Tom Hayden offering counsel and advice. Like Peter, we try to contain the uncontainable. We try to control the uncontrollable. And in this domesticated Jesus, our king has lost his crown and we've lost the gospel. We've lost the awe and the wonder of just who it is that comes to save, comes to reign, and comes to rule. If nothing else we see in the transfiguration, we see throughout the entirety of the gospel that Jesus, the Messiah, was not for Peter to control. And you know what? He isn't for us to control either. It's the other way around. Rather than go and do what we want while tacking Jesus' name onto it, rather than seeking our preferences and our desires, and then maybe we stick a little prayer on it to bring sanctity to it, life in Jesus' kingdom, where the crucified and risen king reigns, necessarily means that we are his first, 
and that we are to listen to him. Let's not get this wrong. Let's not get it twisted. We want Jesus. But far too often what we really want are those benefits that Jesus provides. We want to avoid eternal punishment in hell. We want assurance of forgiveness. We even want, at a time and a place of our own choosing, the experience of transcendence. We try to build tents like Peter. We want to have a little bit of Jesus on our own terms and limit to what we want. But that's not how it's supposed to be. And if we follow, if all we follow is Jesus as we define and dictate Jesus to be, then all we are really following is, is ourselves. And folks, I don't know about you, but I've got more of me than I really want. <laughs> Let Jesus be Jesus. Let the king proclaim what it means to be in the kingdom. Listen to him. But what do we need to listen to Jesus about? Well, you've come back to the context of uh, just after six days, and here we have the transfiguration. First, we must hear Jesus teach about his death and resurrection. God testifies on Jesus' behalf. He is the Messiah, so you've got to pay attention to him. He is God's appointed and anointed one, the true royal king and suffering servant. He speaks truth, and he will die, and he will rise. And so if we're going to follow Jesus, we must listen to him again and again as he proclaims the necessity of his crucifixion and resurrection. There's a story, I don't know if it's true or not, but there's a story about Martin Luther after the Reformation had kicked off and Luther had become the pastor of a church. His people came to him one Sunday, or the people of the church came to him one Sunday, and they said, why do you always preach the gospel? Martin, why do you always preach the gospel? Every Sunday, it's the same gospel message. Why do you do that? And he says, because you do not yet live like gospel people. We have to hear the gospel again and again. That same Martin Luther said the gospel is like a hammer with which we must beat ourselves in the head routinely. Why? Because we are not yet gospel people. If we're going to follow Jesus, we must listen to him again and again as he proclaims the necessity of his crucifixion and his resurrection. You see, folks, we never grow out of or beyond the gospel. We only grow in the gospel. And so we have to listen to Jesus. The second point from this context of Matthew 16, 13 into 17, the, the context here, the second point of teaching that comes just before the transfiguration is a very difficult one to swallow because it's about the cost of discipleship. Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Ouch. Those are difficult words, right? Difficult words to hear, but they're words we have to hear. They're words we have to heed because they come from the mouth of Jesus, the King. What does it mean to bear a cross? What does it mean to deny the self? In a very real sense, it means to die. Make no mistake about it. Before the cross was a fashion accessory, it was an instrument of capital punishment. And to bear a cross is to bear the instrument of your death. But does that mean that Jesus wants his disciples to commit suicide? No. 
It means Jesus wants his disciples to deny the self, to bear the cross, to give up our so-called right of self-determination and will. To be his disciple means to submit to him as king, to follow him in every aspect of life, giving up our demands and expectations and exchanging them for his. Dying to self, bearing the cross means we listen to him, and that is a form of death. To be quite frank, Dying to self, surrendering self-determination is often more painful than physical death because as we follow Jesus and deny ourselves of our will, of our urges and desires, we then have to live with the results. You'll notice that Transfiguration Sunday, this event where Jesus is proclaimed as king, the one to whom we ought to listen, you'll notice that in our calendar year, the lectionary year, you'll notice that it comes at the end of Epiphany, just before Ash Wednesday, and at the beginning of Lent. Why? That was a rhetorical question. Thank you for not answering. In a sense, during the season of Lent, we enter that long, lonely, and painful path of Jesus. As he makes his way to the cross, so we make our way to the cross as well. The season of Lent is a time of confession, a time of repentance. It's a time of fasting, a time of prayer. It's a time of dying to ourselves and listening to King Jesus. And so as we step towards Ash Wednesday, as we step towards Lent, we see that Jesus is the King to whom we should listen. In the transfiguration, we see again and again that Jesus is the King to whom we are to listen. In the transfiguration, as, as preparation for the journey of Lent, we receive a glimpse of glory even to steal ourselves. We receive this reminder that, that while the road ahead will be difficult and even painful, ultimately it will end in glory. It's not without accident that the gospel according to St. Luke records that Moses and Elijah talked with Jesus about his exodus that he was going to achieve in Jerusalem. And then in chapter 9, verse 51 of Luke, after the transfiguration, Luke intentionally reports Jesus set his face toward Jerusalem. So could it be that Jesus undergoes this transfiguration? Moses and Elijah come and talk with Jesus and, and, and in a sense worship him. His glory is revealed so that Jesus himself is reminded and reinvigorated to know that, yes, the road will be painful. It will involve death, true physical death, but it will end not in the grave because, as Dr. Lockridge said, the grave could not hold him. It will end back in glory. And so I can't help but wonder if perhaps the transfiguration then, as we step into Lent, reminds us that, yes, the next 40-some days is going to be a little bit painful. It's going to hurt a little bit as we fast and as we pray, as we listen to Jesus. But in the end, resurrection always follows death. The revelation of Jesus' glory wasn't just showing Peter, James, and John, and by extension us, what Jesus gave up, but also what he will receive as he accomplishes his work. Easter follows Good Friday. Sunday follows Friday. The resurrection follows the cross. And so for us, as we step into Lent, yes, we listen to Jesus 
listening to Jesus, the true king, as he calls us to live, to be, to fast, repent, confess, knowing that in him and only in him does glory await. And I've said this to you in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.